you have it along and turn with me over to Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin reading this morning uh, in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3 and we'll read to the end of the chapter, but our focus this morning will be on verse 15. As we read together, we do so as an act of worship. This is God's word for God's people. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall abide forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you preside over the inspiration of your word and also the illumination of your word. And so we come before you humbly, asking that you would graciously open our eyes and hearts to see the truth of your words here, We ask that you would move us by them to become faithful servants of yours, children of the living God who conduct ourselves in that way, walking worthy 
of the calling to which we have been called in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This might seem like an odd passage of Scripture to open up with as we think about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We heard it read already this morning by Benton and Jane. Uh, We are not beginning in the right place. You think we need to start in Matthew. We need to start in Luke and one of those glorious passages of Scripture that give us a description of the, uh, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. And we could do that, but I did it last year and you want something new. So we're in Genesis 3 this year. Um, I sat down recently with a friend and we were just talking about the Scriptures and, and he said to me, you know, if Jesus, if the Jews had simply accepted Jesus' offer of the kingdom then he never would have had to go through with the crucifixion and whatnot. I said, so wait, wait a second. You're saying to me that, you're saying to me that you, you actually believe that if Israel had accepted Jesus' offer of the kingdom, that the cross would have become unnecessary? Yeah. And he's not alone. There are many people who think that the cross of Jesus Christ was, a, was plan B. And as we read from Genesis to Revelation, what you are seeing on repeat is God's God's attempts to rescue a people and those attempts repeatedly falling into despair and disrepair and Him moving on to plans B and C and D and E and F and G because He is so impotent to accomplish His plan. So it's important for us to go back to Genesis to see that, in fact, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, His crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection, and His ascension are not plan B. They are plan A. I want to give you an extended quote here from Charles Hodge. He says, the person and work of the Redeemer is therefore the great theme of the sacred writers. From the nature of the work which he he was to accomplish, it was necessary that he should be at once God and man. He must participate in the nature of those whom he came to redeem. He had to become man. Why? To be like them. And have power to subdue all evil and dignity, to give value to his obedience and sufferings. From the beginning to the end, therefore, of the sacred volume, from Genesis to Revelation, a God-man redeemer is held up as the object of supreme reverence, love, and confidence to the perishing children of men. It is absolutely impossible to present a tithe of the evidence which the Scriptures contain of the truth of this doctrine. It is to the Bible what the soul is to the body. It's living and all-pervading principle without which the Scriptures are a cold, lifeless system of history and moral precepts. You see what Charles Hodge is saying. If you extract the gospel of Jesus Christ 
from the whole Bible, then you have reduced the Bible to nothing more than a history and anthology of the Jews and their moral precepts. But it isn't that. What it is, is a story. It is a story of how the living God so loved His creation and especially the Father loved His Son that He delighted to display His Son's glory by sending Him to redeem a fallen, worthless mankind. That story begins in many ways in Genesis chapter 3. Adam sinned against God. And in his sin, he brought the consequences on the whole created order. So when we read Genesis 3, what we find is the origin of every woe that afflicts us. Every single one. We didn't read it this morning, but in verse 1 we find that the the record of this commission of, of the great sin begins with Satan. He is the serpent working his way through the garden. It moves to the woman who listened to him and gave in to his temptation. And then to Adam who ultimately listened to his wife and ate of the fruit and brought these consequences on all of creation. And then God entered the scene walking in the cool of the day. And he went first to Adam. And then he moved to the woman. And then finally moves to the serpent, not asking anything, as if to say, hold your tongue, simply speaks a curse upon him. So the pronouncement of these consequences proceeds in the order of the commission of the sin. Satan went to the woman, the woman went to her husband, the husband ate. And so God, as he's handing out these curses, goes to the serpent, goes to, the, to Satan, and then went to the woman, and then went to Adam. As Matthew Henry says, he begins where the sin began with the serpent. So as we're reading here in Genesis 3.15, where we're going to put our finger and meditate for a few minutes, God is speaking to the serpent. I have to say that. I was teaching a, a, a Bible study to some Hispanics when we were back in, uh, back in South Carolina, and I was reading this, and, and all of these assumptions coming in and telling them what it meant, and they finally asked, who is he talking to? God is speaking to the devil, the fallen one. And what we find in this very important passage of Scripture is that God issues not only a curse, but a promise. So we will see the pronouncement of the promise, the placement of the promise, the appropriation of the promise, and the end of the promise. Let's notice, first of all, the pronouncement of the promise in Genesis 3.15. Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice the pronouncement of the promise. What does God say? I will put enmity. 
That's the very beginning of this curse. Those first four words. I will put enmity. Notice God declares simply what He will do in the beginning of this promise. The immediate consequences of disobeying God, it it, it seemed like they contained within themselves the, the immediate effects of the curse. So as soon as Adam ate, notice that his eyes were opened and what did he see? He realized that he was naked. But it, it wasn't just the realization of his, uh, his nakedness. It was that he was ashamed of it. Ch- chapter 2 ended by saying that Adam was naked and he was not ashamed. So something had happened to Adam. It's as though he'd eaten poisoned fruit. And the poison began to flow in his veins, killing him from the inside out. Here... Speaking to the serpent, God indicated that he would add to those consequences. Now, what was the addition? Adam was already ashamed, and and there was some change in his relationship to the Lord, his maker. God says that he would add enmity. Enmity, it refers to a, a heart attitude. When you have enmity towards someone else, it means that you desire their downfall. That you laugh when they come to harm. When their plans fail. When they trip over a rock. You laugh at them. You long for their destruction and for their harm. The the Hebrew term, it comes from the same root as the term for enemy. God declared that He would add animosity hatred to the curse. On May 1st, 1992, in front of a lot of news cameras, a man by the name of Rodney King stood and said, why can't we get along? Now, many of you know the story of Rodney King. Some of you may not. He was uh, pulled over for drunken driving, and then subsequently beaten nearly to death by four police officers, four white police officers. Um, And there was riots afterward because they were acquitted of what they had done. Rodney King stood up May 1st, 1992, and said, can we all get along? When we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what we learn is that hatred is as natural to mankind as drinking water. If you don't believe that, have children. It seems like a father spends 90% of his time just learning how to adjudicate cases. Who's right? Who's wrong? Are there any witnesses? Where's the evidence? The fall, you see, affects our minds and emotions as much as our bodies. You're not just dying on the outside, you are dead on the inside. And it manifests itself by the hand of God it is administered. A major consequence of the fall administered by the hand of God was the introduction of hatred. As much as we might try, as much as we might stand in front of news cameras and say, can't we all just get along? We know that no, no, we cannot get along because the effect of the fall and God's curse was the introduction of hatred. 
Notice, secondly, the placement of this promise. Where is this hatred going to take place? Who's going to hate each other? God says, well, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's he speaking to there? He's speaking to the serpent. So the first place that this animosity will take place is between Eve and this wily serpent, the devil. There's going to be a personal hatred between the woman and Satan. Now, why is that important? Well, some suggest that Satan's ultimate desire was to have Eve for himself. How would he accomplish that? He knew that he couldn't get to Adam directly. So he went to the woman knowing that she would offer him the fruit and surely he'd be more likely to accept the fruit from his wife. He would die and then the devil would have Eve for himself. Why would he want to do this? So that he can have children. So that he can procreate and cast his children upon the earth. Destroy the image of God and instead of having a creation that is the theater for God's glory, it would become covered with the image of Satan instead of the image of God. And so what is God's curse against him? Guess what? She will hate your guts forever. If Satan succeeded, he would ruin God's creation by spreading his own likeness rather than God's. Men would be his image bearers. And in fact, we are, aren't we? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. But this is not the only place that this animosity exists. It also exists between his seed and her seed. Now this is a place where it's very important for you to pay attention to the details. Because what Moses records here in the words of the curse is that it's going to be between... The, the animosity will be between your offspring and her offspring. That means plural, more than one. You, Satan, will have children and Eve will have children and they will always be against each other. So there is perpetual animosity. There's perpetual warfare between the descendants of Satan and the descendants of Eve. You say, well, that's interesting. Does, doesn't that mean that Satan's plan succeeded? He's going to have children? Yes. We notice this enmity playing out in many places in the development of the conflict of Scripture. Remember when Jacob and Esau were born? Remember how Jacob came out of the womb? He was holding on to the foot of his brother. And so that his name literally means heel grabber. It causes us to reflect on what we read here that, that one would come from Eve, whose head would be bruised, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Jacob meant heel grabber. And so we see this entire animosity play out between two brothers, natural born twins, Jacob and Esau. We see it play out in Israel and Egypt. You remember how Pharaoh's crown was adorned, a particular image that rested there. It was a serpent keeping the people of God in captivity. We see it again when Moses comes down and he finds the people uh, worshiping the golden calf. What does he do? He crushed it into pieces. As a consequence of Adam's fall, the earth was plunged into a perpetual warfare. It is a warfare between two kingdoms. This is what the story of Scripture is. These two kingdoms perpetually at odds, perpetually fighting one another, perpetually seeking to dominate the earth. And so we think then, if you're thinking through this passage, who is this other kingdom? Who are the descendants of Satan? Where are they? How do I identify them? Well, Genesis 4 answers that question for you. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 4, there are Cain and Abel. And Cain went to his brother and slew him in the field. And God came to Cain and said, where is your brother? And Cain's response was, well, am I my brother's keeper? And John is helpful here because in his first epistle, he says that Cain was of the evil one. It literally means that he was the son of the devil. Again, as we've already said, that Jesus used this phrase uh, to describe the Pharisees. They were of the devil. Your father is the liar, he said to them. And so what we learn immediately is that the descendants of Satan and descendants of Eve both come from Eve. Well, how do they become different? I mean, how, how is Eve going to have children if, if she gives birth to the sons of the, uh, of the devil and her own children? What makes the difference? God sovereignly makes the difference by taking some of her children as his own and transferring them out of Satan's dominion. This is, remember... In the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed a little bit earlier this morning, we said what? Your kingdom come. Remember, we prayed that. And as we reflect on that from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we remember that what we're asking when we say your kingdom come is the first thing we're saying is, is I acknowledge that by nature I am a member of Satan's kingdom. That is who I am. That is what runs through and courses through my veins. I want to do Satan's will. That's what's natural to me. Until God sovereignly transfers us out of Satan's kingdom and into his own. And so as we pray, your kingdom come, our first reflection there is cause your kingdom to come in my heart. 
conquer every vestige of Satan's kingdom that exists within me. Every affection, every desire, every futile thought that is there. We see in this passage the root of all hatred and calamity in the world. Why does man hate his fellow man? Why do brothers and sisters fight one another over stuffed animals? Why are there wars and rumors of war? These things exist because God has created warfare. It reminds us of the perpetual curse that belongs to those who descend from Adam. But what we should notice as well from this passage is that this warfare is not destined to go on forever. We've seen the placement of the promise between Eve and the, and the serpent and between his children and hers. Notice with me thirdly the end of the promise. Going back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is an interesting twist. Remember that I said you need to note this in detail. The text shifts from the plural, your offspring, her offspring, to the singular. And it's very definitely singular. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What's interesting about this is that if you, if you happen to read Jewish commentators, they always translate this one way. They shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise their heel. You see, what they're doing is they're, they're applying this to the people of God. They're saying the people of God, Israel, the descendants of God, will crush the works of, of Satan. The problem is, that's a mistranslation. He shall bruise your head. The war will come to an end and Satan will be defeated. That's what Moses is teaching us here. The two enemies are going to exchange blows, and it's, you, you can see this, this drama coming to, it, it intensifies and it intensifies and it intensifies until finally one hits the other and destroys him. This, these two enemies are going to bruise each other. It says here in the text they're going to bruise each other. This could be translated grip hard. That's why in some of your translations it says he's going to crush you because you think about taking maybe taking a grape in your hands and, and, and squeezing it until the juice comes out. That's the idea. This is why Jacob was called heel grabber as he's coming out of the womb, grabbing onto his brother's heel, crushing it or striking it. But do you remember how God cursed the serpent in verse 14, where is he destined to go? He must crawl on his belly and eat dust. There is no chance that he will strike the man on his head, in other words. His fate is sealed. 
It is then the location of the bruises that makes a difference, isn't it? The seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent on the head and the serpent will bruise the man on his heel. They're going to grip each other. Why is this important as we think about the incarnation of Christ? Because this tells us why He came. The infant Jesus was born with a sword in His hand. He came to wage war. You consider His temptation. Matthew chapter 2. What happens there? The devil took him, didn't he? He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit in order to be tempted by the devil. And for three occasions, three significant occasions, the devil tempted him to divert from his plan, tried to overcome him. And each time, Jesus resisted by the sword of the Spirit. Think about Jesus' words that we just uh, read from in Matthew 10. I came to bring a sword, not peace. I am a warrior. One commentator's note on this phrase, he says, this means man will have an advantage over you, the serpent, in the enmity between him and you, for he will bruise your head, but you will bruise him only in his heel, with which he will crush your brain. Jesus will have the crushing blow, but he will suffer an injury in his conquest. The serpent will strike him on the heel. We have to remember that redemption comes at a cost to Jesus. He will suffer, die, and be buried to achieve our redemption. In the promise of a Savior, we are told of His humanity and His divinity here. Notice that He comes from the woman. He will be a descendant of Eve. He will be labeled an offspring of Eve just as her other offspring. He will be a man. But we're also told of His divinity. How? Because He will possess the power to crush the brains of the devil. From the dawning of His incarnation then, Christ's purpose is to redeem His people by defeating Satan. In His redemptive work, the God-man will undo the work of Satan by freeing His people from the devil's bondage. And when the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ in the new birth, you are freed from bondage to sin and Satan, and you are made an heir of heaven. But how do we appropriate this promise? I mean, we've we've already understood that, that the sons of Eve and the sons of the devil will both come from Eve. So there's not a genetic difference. This is not a difference of DNA. We couldn't take blood samples from each one of you and put them under a microscope and say, ah, There's the gene. Skip down with me to verse 20 of Genesis 3. The man called his wife's name Eve 
because she was the mother of all living. That's interesting, isn't it? After all this has happened, Adam responds by calling his wife. The first time that she's had a name, she's been the woman up until this point. He calls his wife's name Eve, which means the mother of all living. What's happening here is that Adam, by faith, is expressing his trust in God's promise. That although he and his wife and all creation deserve to be crushed by the heel of God, that instead God is going to crush the head of the serpent. She's going to go on having children. And Adam expresses his sincere faith and God's provision by calling his wife's name Eve. She's not the mother of the dying. She's the mother of the living. Consider the culmination of this then. As God chose Mary to bear the incarnate Christ, although a holy and righteous woman, in a sense, gave birth to sin in the world through a fallen and a sinful woman, God restored life to the world. God responds in verse 21 by making garments of skins. Because of Adam's faith, his expression of faith, and calling his wife's name Eve, God slays a lamb and takes the skin and clothes his children. And we are reminded that all those who are of the faith share in Christ's victory. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ has crushed him. Christ has defeated him. Christ has destroyed his works. In his incarnation, he wielded his sword faithfully. And he did what Adam the father of all mankind should have done when he crushed the head of the serpent. And this, dear friends, is why we celebrated this season, the incarnation of Christ. Why? Because he was born with a sword. And all of those who share Adam's faith in the Son of God and in his work also share in his victory. God responded to Adam's sin by promising redemption through a warrior son. Genesis 3.15 introduces us to the conflict that gives birth to redemption. 
Genesis 3.15 reveals the great plot of Scripture. Who is this going to be? As we uh, turn the page uh, to Genesis chapter 4, Eve gives birth to a son. And she says, I have gotten a son, and the literal translation of the Hebrew is there, is even Yah, even God. This plot culminated in the incarnation of the Son of God who set His people free by defeating the serpent. And now, you and I, we simply rest. We simply rest in the accomplished work of our Savior and participate in the expansion of His kingdom. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we come before You this morning as a victorious Son. We thank You that You were born to set us free. Set us free from what? To set us free from the bondage of sin and of Satan. And we thank You that each and every one of us who are of true faith recognize in our own being, in our very existence, that we right now taste of the victory that You have accomplished. You have the fullness. You are the firstborn over all creation. You are the first fruits of the resurrection. You live in the life that we will live in after Your return. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would help us to go on appropriating Your victory by faith. That You would sanctify us that we would live in a way that is mindful of these two kingdoms and that You would use us to further Yours. We know You don't need us, but You've ordained that Your kingdom would go forward. Now, by the power of Your Spirit, through the proclamation of Your Word and the administration of Your sacraments, and we ask now that You would bless us and that we, even now, would see, would see the victory of your kingdom before us. As our children come to faith, as they express their faith, as our grandchildren express their faith, and righteousness rules in the world. We pray for that in your name. Amen.